Hello, and welcome or welcome back to the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast. Happy 2024. I know it's cliche, but it feels wrong not to say it. Also, I don't know about you guys, but I love the even numbers of 2024. It just feels right. Maybe that's because growing up, my numbers in sports were always either 2, 4, or 24. I could never get the zero though. You know how everybody wants the number zero, or maybe that was just an experience I grew up with? I don't know. Let me introduce myself before I continue to talk about my high school sport antics that no one wants to know about. My name is Mallory Page. I am a registered dietitian, and I am the creator and host of this podcast, which is for those times when you are listening to a current event, learning something about nutrition or fitness or wellness, and wondering to yourself, this kind of seems off, or this seems like diet culture, but is it really diet culture? And even if you don't know what diet culture means, that's okay too. This podcast is a space for you, really just to have an alternate perspective to what we always hear about in the media. Diet culture is this pervasive belief that the way that we look and the size of our body is more important than anything else. Our emotional, mental, physical well-being, and even just all of the other areas of the wellness wheel. And most of the stuff that we interact with, especially on social media, but even with people that we talk to, is diet culture based. And it's not that in this podcast I'm saying that that's wrong, but I want to help to share alternate perspectives and really lean on the actual research that we have, as well as professional and educated opinions. And although, of course, I have my own bias and own opinions, right? I am a non-diet dietitian. I really want this podcast to just be a space where you can take away new information and then form the thoughts that work for you based off of your life and how you want to live. And that's what's most important. We all have our own autonomy of choice and ultimately no one online should be telling us we have to do something. And yet that is totally what the current environment feels like, especially in the new year right now. I don't know how you guys feel, but I just feel so exhausted every year when it hits January 1st. And it just seems like every single thing you see is talking about how it's a new year and it needs to be a new you. You need to remove this food group. You need to do this challenge. You need to do X, Y, and Z to your body. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. And every year I feel like it's going to be better and yet it seems to be the same. And funny enough, this article that we're talking about today on ultra processed foods by the Washington Post was a part of their New Year's tune-up. It was day two in their releases of articles around how to tune up for the new year. So we're going to be deep diving into this article. I'm going to explain what was said in it, who wrote this article, why it was important, what the reaction was to it, and ultimately discuss ultra-processed foods and what we know about ultra-processed foods and which of these nine red flags that are being posed and which of these really have any validity to them and which do not as well as just how you can kind of view processed foods depending on where you're at with your relationship with food. So we're going to be going into all of that. But before we do, I want to give one quick disclaimer and one quick announcement. We'll start with a quick disclaimer. I am recovering from a cold and that is why my voice is so scratchy. I swear I'm not trying to have vocal fry. 
So please forgive me. I have been really just moving through the cough drops at a rapid pace, but I can't have the cough drop in while I'm recording because then it's just, it's some ASMR that no one is asking for. So thank you for being patient with me, especially because I have a new recording setup because we just moved from Austin, Texas to Colorado and I have a new space and I'm no longer recording in a closet. Sad because it feels like the end of an era, but happy because now I get to sit at my desk, but I feel like it captures the sound even more intimately. So the vocal fry from my cold is even more noticeable. Now the announcement is much more exciting and that is that spots are officially open for our February 2024 round of Live Unrestricted. If you haven't heard of Love Unrestricted before, it is my signature 12-week program designed to transform your relationship with food, body image, and exercise. Most specifically, this is for you if you're in this space where your relationship to those things is not as bad as it used to be. You've taken a lot of strides, you feel like you're in a better place, and yet you still aren't fully where you want to be. Maybe you feel like there are just these little times that show you that you don't have that full freedom that other people have. Maybe you notice yourself still thinking a lot about food or worrying about how your body looks or worrying about it changing more or stressing about breaking routines. And you want to be able to have that full confidence in your body, in what you eat. You want to feel like the best version of yourself, but also be able to have all of the things that you want and really live in a way that feels the most aligned for you so that you can just have the best life. Because ultimately, our relationship with these things, food, body image, and exercise, it heavily affects our ability to show up in our life and our happiness. And if these things are resonating with you, I would love to invite you to apply to this next round. It will be our 10th round of the program. We've had almost 200 women go through it, which is absolutely wild to me. So if you are potentially interested in this, there is a link in the show notes that will guide you through next steps, which includes a no strings attached free discovery call with me. So there is not pressure to join. You just get to learn more about the program and if it is a good fit for you. So I look forward to hopefully chatting with some of you guys here soon, but without further ado, we need to dive into this episode and chat through this Washington Post article. Now, If you have listened to this podcast before, you know that Washington Post has been frequenting the podcast because of all of these diet culture-like articles that they keep putting out. And most of these link back to the same man, Anahad O'Connor. You may be familiar with the name because he is the same guy that did the article about dietitians and aspartame. I will link the podcast where I discuss this if you want to learn more about it. But there have been other articles by him as well, all very diet culture-y. And to give you a little bit of background on him that I talk about in that other podcast I mentioned, he is someone that wrote a weight loss book without any credentials. So that just gives you kind of some insight into some of his viewpoints, at least from a bird's eye view. Now, this article specifically is titled, Look for These Nine Red Flags to Identify Food That is Ultra Processed. Subheading. In day two of our New Year's tune-up, free yourself from the grip of ultra-processed food by looking for these signs on the package label. Now, I first want to say that I have wanted to talk about ultra-processed foods and processed foods in general on this podcast, 
But the reason why I have not yet done it is because talking about ultra processed foods is actually kind of a hard thing to do because mostly you're discussing the misinformation about them. There is no clear definition out there on what an ultra processed food is. There are no clear guidelines for what it is. And there is also not strong research on ultra processed foods because of this. So don't get me wrong. There are people have that have studied and researched ultra processed or processed foods, but because there is no clear definition, it makes it very, very hard to study. And from my research, I've seen that people are trying to almost get these definitions for these foods, and yet it continues to be subject for debate. So there are some categorization systems that are out there. For example, the Nova Food Processing Groups, which is from the UN, and they have four different groups that they classify. Unprocessed or minimally processed is group one, group two is processed ingredients, group three is processed foods, and then group four is ultra processed foods and beverages. Within this, unprocessed or minimally processed foods are things that are basically directly from nature and then modified very little amount. So like freezing, drying, cooking is all fine. Group two is processed ingredients that come from group one. So an example of that would be oil, butter, sugar, salt. That stuff is created from those group one foods. Then we have number three, which is processed foods such as pickled vegetables, canned fish, fruits and syrup, cheese, freshly baked bread. And these are mainly made by adding salt, oil, or sugars or other substances from the processed foods or the processed ingredients group two category. And they often involve preservation or cooking methods or non-alcoholic fermentation and so on and so forth. And then there's group four, which is ultra processed foods. They say things like soft drinks, sweet or savory packaged snacks, reconstituted meat products, or pre-prepared frozen dishes are within this category. And they are made largely or entirely from food-derived substances and additives with little to no intact Nova Group 1 foodstuffs. They go on to explain all of the different things that can be a part of ultra-processed foods, such as hydrogenated oils or additives or bulking agents and a bunch of other things. But again, even within these classifications, there are no clear definitions of exactly what is involved and what is not involved. And at the conclusion of this, they say that Ultra-processing is to create branded, convenient, sustainable, ready-to-eat, attractive, hyper-palatable, and highly profitable foods. What I think is important about this is even within these classification systems, there are still not clear definitions that we can definitively look to to say what an ultra-processed food is. And also, this type of classification system is not used everywhere. So even if you see some of these things, that does not mean that this is what everybody is using. So just with this context, it already kind of sends up a red flag about this article because how are they going to give definitive red flags around ultra-processed foods when there isn't even a clear definition and there are not even clear guidelines to what one is? So to me, this already starts to lean into a bias piece because if we know that there's not research behind it, we know then that someone is taking their opinions to a certain extent or what they think and then using them to generate this information. 
And if we go back to this article and look at the very first section of it, they do actually put in this kind of definition of ultra-processed foods. They say, ultra-processed foods are formulations of industrial ingredients that are designed by manufacturers to achieve a certain bliss point, which causes us to crave and overeat them. Ultra-processed foods make up the majority of the calories most people consume, and scientists say they are the driving force behind the multiple diet-related illnesses that are shortening our lifespans. Now, there are a lot of big claims already within this section, and in this particular podcast, we're not going to make the space to go through all of these claims. I do want to do that in an episode and talk to you guys about all of the current research we have. But what I want to keep going back to is that even if there are reviews that bring about certain information around ultra-processed food or our idea of what ultra-processed foods are, there are still no definitive definitions. So no one can make 100% definitive claims around something. And that is what this beginning section is already doing. They are saying that processed foods are formulations of industrial ingredients. Although that this is true, it is not the only truth around ultra-processed foods because we don't know exactly what we think an ultra-processed food is. If you go back to the Nova categories, they say that industrial ingredients can be added in, but they don't only have to be in there. Now, the second thing is that even if there are manufacturers that design food products to achieve certain bliss points or to have these highly palatable types of foods that attract people to eat them, which does happen, that doesn't mean that that's what ultra-processed foods are. There are, in fact, many processed foods that originated out of a different need, such as people that didn't have access to produce, couldn't afford it, couldn't keep it fresh for long enough. And so they decided to go for these types of foods that are more processed because they are more sustainable, because they can last longer, etc., etc. There's a lot of different reasons. It's not as simple as people just creating it to reach a certain bliss point. And if bliss point, quote unquote, has to be in quotes, then we already know that that's not involved within a scientific definition, which is how this article is trying to pose itself, is more so as a authoritative, definitive reminder of what are red flags. And with the ultra-processed foods making up the majority of calories people consume and scientists saying they're the driving force between the multiple diet-related illnesses that are shortening our lifespans, again, even if there are certain reviews that say these things, that does not mean that that is fact. Correlation does not equal causation. And I just feel like People in diet culture that abide by these mindsets, they just don't get that. And that's why you have to be so careful with reading these types of articles because journalists are not researchers and they're not scientists. They're just journalists. And even researchers and scientists and doctors, they can all have their own biases too, just like I can have my own bias. We all do, right? But it's also important when we're presenting information to acknowledge those things and not present things as fact. So now that we've got that intro out of the way and done a little bit of discussion, I'm going to go into the nine different red flags that are posed here. Starting off with number one, which to me is the most outlandish one of them all, which is more than three ingredients. 
The description is, many ultra-processed foods have long lists of ingredients that can sound like a high school chemistry experiment. If you like bread, for instance, choose a brand that only contains simple ingredients, such as wheat flour, barley flour, sourdough starter, salts, nuts, or raisins. (laughs) Why is that so funny to me that they're letting in raisins? Like, why raisins? I don't know. Just a funny note. Many ultra-processed breads contain sugar, vegetable oil, artificial sweeteners, and multiple preservatives, emulsifiers, and shelf life extenders such as sorbic acid, calcium propionate, datum, and monoglycerides. So here's the thing. We know that this is completely arbitrary. I have no idea, and I would truly pay to know, not that much money, but, but money, I would pay to know how they decided on more than three ingredients. There are so many foods that are like barely processed based off of what these people are asking for that have more than three ingredients. Even a bread like they're talking about usually will have more than three ingredients. A fresh bread. It's just that they don't know that because there's no ingredient label on it. So this one is is truly wild and it to me is the most dangerous. So I really, really, really want at least for you guys to know, please do not be scared of eating something with more than three ingredients. I promise you that is completely out of left field. There is not one inch, I don't know why I said inch, of science or research to support this. This is outlandish, even for people that talk about ultra-processed foods. And I really do not want you guys to think that. I don't know why they think it's okay to put something like this out, and I think it's quite dangerous, honestly. The typical messaging that you would see would be choosing foods with less ingredients in order to try to avoid processing. And There can be some truth in that, and there can also be times where that is not the truth. It just depends, and that's why this stuff is challenging. Overall, I think most people, I'm sure almost all of you guys, generally have an understanding of foods that are less processed, fruits and vegetables and nuts and oils and things along those lines that you can tell are either from nature, or they are something, as we discussed in that NOVA classification, that are derived from something that they got from nature. So it's great to add in those things if you can afford them and if it makes sense for you. And yes, those will have less processing, but that does not mean that other things that have more ingredients than those are bad and red flags. Now, our second one is thickeners, stabilizers, or emulsifiers. They say, look for ingredients such as soy lecithin, gargum, xanthan gum, carrageenan, and on and on and on. They also talk about how they contain dyes to make them look more appealing. It's kind of random how they put this together. They'll say something, but then they don't have anything to support it, so they don't explain why to avoid thickeners, stablers, or emulsifiers. They just say what it is, basically, and then give more opinions on what you should avoid. 
So thickener stabilizers and emulsifiers, they are going to be found in a lot of products like dairy-free milks, and they help to emulsify things, keep them stabilized. And again, a lot of times there's a ton of fear-mongering around these products, and we don't have time to go through each one of these ingredients, but some of this stuff, again, leans into such an extreme. For example, xanthan gum. So people that are on a gluten-free diet or that have celiacs and so therefore are, are on a gluten-free diet, most of their bread products contain xanthan gum because it helps to hold it together because it doesn't have the gluten, which typically helps to make sure that bread holds together well. So then are you saying that all of those people shouldn't even be having foods like that? And then what are they going to eat? It's basically just a lot of fear-mongering, again, around kind of randomly chosen ingredients. And of course, there is research being done and explored on thickeners, staplers, or emulsifiers, but there's nothing definitively that says that these things are bad for you, that need to be avoided. And, And it's just when they continue to do this stuff, it serves them because it makes the foods that you choose then more expensive and less accessible, right? So if they make you feel afraid of every single thickener and emulsifier and everything, then next thing you know, you're having to buy a freaking $10 milk at the store. Like, no thank you. Number three, added sugars and sweeteners. This one is so funny, you guys. Probably my favorite one. Well, I don't know. A lot of them are funny. It says, try to avoid foods with corn syrup, cane sugar, malt syrup, or molasses on the label. If you want extra sweetness, add your own sugar or honey. (laughs) I'm sorry you had to endure that wheezy laugh, but this is so contradictory. I'm not trying to be rude, but it is truly funny to me because essentially they're saying that you can't have foods that have these things on the label. But then they say you can add your own sugar. So cane sugar is the same sugar that you would be adding at home. So why is it different when it's in the product versus when you're adding it at home? Similarly, honey and molasses are so, so similar to each other. So what is the difference between molasses and honey? And how did they decide those things? Considering most sugars have a very, very similar makeup to them. And I don't really understand the difference of why it's this huge red flag to see molasses in a product, but it's fine to add your own. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's totally fine to add your own. But I also do not agree with the fact that it's a red flag to see it within a product. And they follow this up by saying more people would add less honey or sugar than you will find in packaged versions. That's much healthier than relying on the yogurt company to determine how much sugar additives you should eat. In theory, this could be true, that you may add less of these things. But again, where is the connection to how this is then a red flag? Because just having something within a product doesn't make it a red flag. And even sugar within itself, I have a whole episode about is sugar actually addictive where I break down sugar and talk more about it. Of course, just like anything, we, if we go to the extreme with something, it's not going to make us feel our best. That's true for anything, even water. 
And yes, sugar is in more foods than certain other things, but just because a sugar is in something does not automatically make it ultra-processed or a red flag. Next one is ingredients that end in os. Examine the label for sucrose, maltose, dextrose, fructose, or glucose. These are other names for added sugar. So, funny story, fructose plus glucose together is what makes up honey. So, let's just think about that. That's all I have to say for that one. Number five, artificial or fake sugars. Look for aspartame, sucralose, asulfame K, saccharin, or stevia. Sweeteners and artificial flavors are another hallmark of ultra-processed foods. Sugars and sweeteners often are added to mask the off-putting taste from the preservatives and other ingredients that are added in, said Avina, the author of the new book, Sugarless. Here's the thing. A big thing to look out for when you're reading an article is what they're citing. So if they were citing a research article, that would be more interesting. But they're citing someone that authored a book called Sugarless. So of course, their bias, again, is going to confirm what they are saying within this article. So sugars and sweeteners can be put into products to, I don't even think mask the off-putting taste is correct, but they can be put in there especially to add to a product's taste or to make it taste better. But those are not the only reasons why sugar is used. Sugar is actually a natural preservative and so it's often put into foods and beverages because it helps to prevent microbial growth by reducing the water activity in the product through osmosis or dehydration. And so we just have to acknowledge that If we only present the one side, then of course it seems that way. But if we really look at all of the reasons why a sugar may be used, then it's not as simple as what it's being made out to seem in this article. And just having a sugar or an artificial sweetener in a product, again, doesn't automatically make it ultra processed. I know I keep reiterating that, but that is the point of this whole article. Number six is health claims. Ultra-processed foods often have buzzy marketing claims on their packages. Many products that are marketed as nutritious are actually laden with sweeteners and other additives. These products include breakfast cereals, granolas, flavored yogurt, snack bars, salad dressings, and canned soups. This one I find very fascinating because, yes, there are often health claims on the things that are listed, but there are also very often health claims on the types of products that people like this man likely endorse and love. I mean, I've seen health claims on things like rice before that'll be like naturally gluten-free superfood. I mean, of course it's gluten-free or not naturally gluten-free. They'll just say gluten-free or superfood. And I think that when you just say something like health claims, it does really bring up the question of, okay, but what what makes you decide that it's a bad health claim versus a good health claim? And how does a health claim definitively say that something is ultra processed? We can't really say. Again, that's that's just correlating two things that you feel like you've observed. There is, again, 
even by people that talk about ultra-processed foods, this is not something that I've heard of often. This is not a commonly used guideline, even by people that discuss this. <clears throat> Number seven is low sugar promises. Similar to the last one, it basically says that the labels say that the product is low in added sugar. This can be a red flag because manufacturers often replace sugar in their products with artificial sweeteners. Again, yes, this can happen. There are products where artificial sweeteners replace where what would usually be sugar, and therefore it is lower, lower sugar, but it's higher in artificial sweeteners. At the same time, I have seen many products that are health food products that are marketed in a similar way that say there's no added sugar. And so, and, and let's say, I've even seen ones like that that have three ingredients or less. Or I've seen things like yogurt that says no sugar or low sugar. And so their claims and their red flags are, again, contradicting each other. So that one just reminds me exactly of the one before. Number eight is instant and flavored varieties. When it's instant, it's usually mechanically altered in a way that degrades it. If you like oatmeal for breakfast, buy the product that has only oats in it and nothing else. Don't be tempted by foods offered in a variety of fruity or other flavors. If you like fruit-flavored yogurt, buy plain yogurt and add your own fresh fruit. So again, the oatmeal example. There are instant oatmeal products that are quite literally only oats cut into smaller pieces. Funny enough, steel-cut oats versus rolled oats that most people end up eating are even a derivative of the first steel-cut oat. Everything that we eat, not everything, but most things that we eat are processed, as I was mentioning to you guys in that Nova scale. So just because something is made more instant doesn't mean that it is automatically worse for you. It can just mean that it has been processed differently. And that's the thing. Processing is so much more than what we think it is. Kind of like I was saying in the NOVA classifications, canned vegetables are processed and we don't usually think of something like that as processed in the same way. So again, similar sentiment, so I won't drive that home yet again. But last one is number nine. Could you make it in your kitchen? When in doubt, look at the ingredient label and ask yourself whether you could make it at home. Ultra-processed foods contain additives that are not typically used in home kitchens. They are often transformed into textures and shapes not found in nature. Think like frosted cereals, donuts, hot dogs, and chicken nuggets. The whole thing of not found in nature is so funny to me because when are you walking around and stumbling upon yogurt and nature? Even foods that they say are not processed are still things that don't look as they look in nature. Most of the foods that we eat don't look how they look in nature, right? Taking wheat and processing it into bread, even the type of bread that they have supposedly approved, that doesn't look like what you find in nature. So again, not a strong argument. It is just developing things that sound convenient to make people feel like they should not have something. 
And also, it is also, it is interesting to me because of the fact that the whole could you make it at home thing also goes against many of the things that they've said. Because technically, something like xanthan gum, you know, mo- both of my parents were gluten-free for a period of time. You can buy xanthan gum and you add it into most of those baked goods in order to create them. And also, what what is then constituted as something you can make at home? So could you use molasses and make a recipe at home with molasses? And would that be fine, even though it's not fine when it's in a product? Can what you make at home be more than three ingredients? Because supposedly three ingredients means that it's processed. So again, lots of things that are just not adding up, even within their own red flags. And it was super cool to see on the post how people called this out and got really kind of sick of it. Um, I mean, most of the time when I see diet culture stuff, most of the consensus in the comments is agreement. And this time I did not see that for all different reasons, which I thought was interesting. So there were some people saying this post fuels eating disorders, which I think that there is potential that something like this could for the wrong person seeing it. I mean, I know my past self dealing with orthorexia 100%. But I also saw a lot of other types of comments talking about the bigger system. Someone saying, ugh, yet another oversimplification screaming, don't eat processed foods you can't pronounce. As other commenters are echoing, this should not be an onus placed on the individual consumers. Manufacturers should be responsible For the food landscape they create and making access to fresh and healthy foods should be facilitated by regulators and by sellers. Someone else saying, looks like I'm not eating again. Another one says, and yet the biggest red flag is this article. And many other people just saying that a lot of this stuff is really, really off base and that it's elitist and I think that the reason why we see such a consensus on people disliking this article is because it misses the mark in so many ways. Yes, 100%, as I mentioned, it could be something that's hard for someone with disordered eating to see. But in the bigger picture, it's also totally missing the point on how, as many people in the comments were saying, access to food, people's inability to buy fresh foods, these systems that we live in overall as a society and more all contribute to the reason why so many people rely on processed foods. I experienced this firsthand when I did my dietetic internship in Oklahoma and I was in a hospital in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and we had people that would come into the hospital that were 90 minutes away from a gas station as their grocery store and three hours away from an actual grocery store. So those people end up eating more processed foods. And I also saw people that were making a choice between feeding their children a Happy Meal that is more satiating and filling that they can afford and feeding them a bag of lettuce because groceries are so expensive. And I think that we have to acknowledge that the reason why people are leaning on processed foods is not just because they're palatable or because the consumer only wants those foods. 
Of course, there are going to be circumstances where that is the case, but saying that the majority of people are only doing it for that reason is just misguided. And similarly, when discussing this rhetoric around diseases and illnesses related to these foods, we are completely forgetting why there are different people in the U.S. that are in higher levels of poverty in the subsequent traumas and experiences that they have had that have made their life difficult that can also lead to illnesses. Food is not the only thing that is contributing to this stuff. And so oftentimes people making these types of articles come from extremely high levels of privilege and don't have much context to actually be sharing this stuff. And that's what makes this stuff super frustrating. And that's just me saying, honestly, my bias, that I think it is really frustrating. And I don't know how you feel about it. I hope that no matter what, you got a different perspective. And it led you to think critically about the things that were presented in this article. So you can decide how you really feel about them and potentially broaden your perspective and context on the conversation around ultra-processed foods and also on the Washington Post and articles like this. Because I just feel like we kind of are dealing with somewhat of a crisis in the space of nutrition, wellness, even just media. And the need for media literacy is at an all-time high because of how many people are sharing things definitively as if they are fact when they do not actually have any research or education to back that up. And this is separate from even just this issue, but it is super concerning and it's something I see all over social media. So I really hope that this gave you at least a taste of the ultra-processed foods conversation. (laughs) LOL, ultra-processed foods taste. I shouldn't say LOL. I'm pretty sure that's considered chuggy. I don't know. Back to what we were saying. I would love to do a follow-up on this where we do dive even deeper into what the research says. So if you're interested in something like that, please let me know. I always really appreciate any feedback you have on episodes or episodes idea episode ideas. There is actually a space always in the show notes where you can submit any episode ideas that you have and or give me any feedback as well. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks for starting the new year with me. If you're listening to this right at the beginning of 2024, I hope you continue to weather the storm of diet culture talk and the new year, new you talk, because geez, it is just a lot. And if you need any support, know that I'm here. If you're looking to break out of these mindsets around diet culture and lean in to the version of eating and moving and living that feels best for you, I would definitely recommend checking out my program, Live Unrestricted. As I mentioned, it will be in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to share it with someone, leave a rating or review, it means the world. I'll see you guys next week. Bye.